I'm going to go ahead and read uh, the passage, Hebrews 8, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dig into it. Starting in verse 1. Now, the point in what we were saying is this, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since they are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, And write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's holy and infallible word. Let's ask for his blessing on it this evening. Father, we come before you. This evening, we're tired, and and we're we're hungry, and we feel weak. We feel our weakness. Um, We're at this point in the semester where things start to drag, and, and we are just exhausted, and we need to be refreshed and encouraged. God, I pray that your word would be that for us tonight. In this passage, which is really full of, of imagery and ideas that are, are so connected to the Old Testament, which we might be unfamiliar with, I pray that you would send your spirit upon us to give us wisdom as we look at this word. That you would make it clear for us, that we would understand it. God, I pray most of all that you would help me tonight. That you would send your spirit upon me to encourage me, to, to enable me to speak words of truth and life from this passage words that are encouraging and helpful for these students that will build them up and enable them to live uh, more and more into the reality that you have made for them. But I pray that we would see in this passage your love for us, your kindness for us, that we would see it, understand it, and grasp it. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Tonight, uh, right before we left for a large group, we were sitting down to dinner, and we looked around, and we noticed that our cat, Daisy, was not inside. She was not in the house. And I was like, okay, interesting. We looked um, kind of, you know, whenever it's dinner time, y'all got got to know one thing about Daisy. She does not miss a meal. Um, She is, like, usually three hours early for her meal and letting us know that she wants it. Um, And so we were looking around, and we saw uh, that she was... Um, in, in our backyard, it kind of there, there's a little like patch of grass and a patch of sand, and then there's a wire fence on the back side of our yard. 
kind of separating our yard from our neighbor's yard. And we looked outside and we saw that Daisy was on the other side of the fence, the other side of this wire fence, and had apparently forgotten how she got over there. I don't know how she got over there, but she's sitting behind this wire fence. It's like, um, you know, kind of like chicken wire. And she's just like meowing furiously. She's the angriest that I've ever seen. She had forgotten how she got over there. She, she was meowing angrily at us, expecting us to somehow like magically get rid of this fence or to climb. It's probably like about a five foot high fence or something. Like it's not one you can just like bend over and like pick her up over. Um, and so we were kind of just like, you know, Daisy, you got yourself into the situation. You can get yourself out. You can figure out how to go back over there. Because the truth is, like, she had the tools to do that. I mean, first off, she if she had just sort of, like, walked around the fence, she would have been able to come back. But also, like, all the other neighborhood cats, there's, like, wooden posts, and they just climb up with their claws. But she couldn't do it. She was so angry. She was so upset that this obstacle was in front of her. And she was so mad at us because we weren't helping her in her mind. Um, that she just sat there. And eventually, right, our neighbor, like, noticed that something, like, there was this strange beast in her yard. And she came out, and our neighbor, Sherry, picked her up and kind of, like, threw her over the fence. And, and she landed on her feet. She's fine. She made it back into the house. But she, she was so mad. Like, why didn't we help her? Why didn't we, like, come and meet her needs in her mind? Um, even though, right, like, she, I mean, theoretically, like, I guess I could have, like, knocked the fence over or, but the truth was she could find her way back on her own. Even though she had got herself in that situation, she had the claws and paws and abilities to get back to the other side. She was so mad. She was questioning, um, honestly, probably like her entire relationship with us. Um, in hard times, like th- this, this, um, this letter is written to people who are in hard times, similar to our cat Daisy was today. Um, the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to are in suffering. I've said this like a couple times as we've gone through, but it's barriers worth like being reminded as we study each individual passage. They're in hard times. They are struggling. They might be being tempted to ask themselves like, man, is, is following Jesus worth it? Is it actually like good for my life? Is it accomplishing the things that I wanted to? Is it effective to help me? If we're honest with ourselves, when times are hard, when we, when we fall into sin, when we're weak, when we're doubting, when we experience shame or guilt, we might be tempted to think the same things. Does Christianity work for me? Does Jesus' ministry, does, does the things that Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus has accomplished, does it actually like help? Um, like, God, why are these things happening to me? And, and this passage, I'm not going to say, is going to be able to answer all of those questions and doubts like with 100% satisfaction. But what this passage is saying is that like, because we can see the work of Jesus as a historical event recorded in Scripture and how it's a fulfillment of God's promises, that can give us actually a lot of certainty. That can give us a lot of hope. Like We live in a period of time and a period of history of how God relates to his people where we have full view of the accomplishments of Jesus. Or in in other words, like the main point that I want y'all to see tonight is that because Jesus has accomplished salvation for us in history, we can trust in the promises that God makes through him. Like we can see how he has accomplished things for us. Um, In other words, like there's a sense in which because Jesus has come and lived and died and been raised from the dead, like his ministry is a finished product. 
It's not in progress. Like the battle, so to speak, is already won. There are two aspects of that. There are two aspects, um, things, two things that are accomplished or, or that this passage highlights that God has accomplished. One is that, that Jesus' ministry for us accomplishes salvation. And the other is that Jesus' covenant fulfills God's promises. So Jesus accomplishes salvation, but he also fulfills God's promises. First off, um, the first half of this passage is really talking about how Jesus, once more, is the better priest. And the author of Hebrews is just hitting on that over and over and again. This whole book, um, probably uh, Hebrews 9 and 10, are, there's going to be very similar themes, different angles on what does it mean for us that Jesus is our priest, um, right? A priest is someone who who's intercedes, who stands in between, who offers gifts and sacrifices on behalf of of people to a God and represents that God to the people who worship him. And, and if Jesus is our priest, he's the best possible version of a priest. He's, he's a priest that actually accomplishes the things that he proclaims that, that he can do. What this passage is saying is that as a priest, as a minister, Jesus's ministry actually accomplished the things that it needed to. The Old Testament was full of a bunch of systems of priests and laws and sacrifices they were all symbolic. They were all symbolic. They, a symbol is something that, that represents something, that points to something else. And Jesus' ministry is not symbolic. It was real. It actually accomplished the things that point, like that, that all the other symbols were pointing towards. Um, and so, you know, what are some of these things that the ministry accomplishes or, or, or the ways that Jesus' ministry is more real? The first is that the it says in verse 1, you know, we have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So the priests in the Old Testament, they would minister in places on earth. Uh, first in a big, big tent that in the Old Testament they call the tabernacle. And then once they got into the land, uh, the promised land, God's people built a temple. And so then the priests would minister in there. But they were symbols. Those were symbolic places where God would come and meet with the priest uh, as a symbol of, of how he would meet with his people. But it, with Jesus, his ministry is done in heaven, in the heavenly place. The place that the temple and the tabernacle and all of the places where God's people worship God, like it pointed to the reality of that. That Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of heaven. He is like before God the Father himself. The one who died for you. That's where he is right now. Jesus ministers in the heavenly place. The, the, the reality that all of the foreshadowing of the Old Testament laws were pointing towards. Jesus ministers before God himself, right in the throne room of heaven. And I think like this principle, the Old Testament pointing ahead to the reality of the New Testament... It might be a helpful thing as you all approach the Old Testament, like if if you're reading through maybe a Bible plan or or wanting to dive into a book of the Old Testament, and and you might be a little intimidated because there's some, like, confusing stuff in there. Like, I I get it. Um, But when you do that, you can try to apply this principle. Like, a huge percent of the Old, Old Testament is about one of two things. One, about how God's people are, like, really messed up and how they need a Savior. Or, with all the laws and rules and regulations, what that's about is about, um, it's pointing ahead to a figure. 
It's foreshadowing for a figure who is going to come and accomplish the reality that the sacrifices and symbols pointed towards. Um, Jesus' ministry is the person. He is the person to which the Old Testament laws were indicating, right? That's what it says. It says, every priest, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer, In the Old Testament, the priests uh, would offer the sacrifices of of goats and bulls and all kinds of animals. Um, But that was a symbol. Like, why, like, God, why would God care? You know, what what moral impact would it have for you to sacrifice a goat if you were, like, mean to your neighbor? None, right? It doesn't, like, the the sort of, it breaks down. And so it it was a symbol, and we're going to see very clearly in the next chapter in Hebrews 9, exactly how that symbolism is fulfilled in Christ. But this points to it, right? Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary for this priest, Jesus, the high priest, to have something to offer. And the thing that he offers, can I click this? Okay, cool. The thing that he offers is himself. The thing that Christ offers is himself, his blood, his life on our behalf for those who believe in him. Right? It's not that the blood of goats and the blood of bulls would actually take away sin, but it pointed to a different type of blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, shedding his blood for sinners like you and me. And in the holy places, right, like that's that's what he offered when he was on the cross. That is the offering that was being played out in heaven. That was being played out in the throne room of God, not like literally as if his sort of blood was transported up there. It's crazy. But um, like that is that is spiritually what has happened. His blood has interceded for you and for me, for anyone who believes in him, because y'all, we needed a priest just that, by way of reminder, like. We are fallen in sin. That's what the Bible says, that there's a problem and we need someone to come save us, dead in our trespasses and sins. And God, right, even though he is rich in mercy, he's also just. And for us to be with God, to have a relationship with God, to draw near to God, to have life in God, something had to be done about the sin. Something had to be done about our brokenness. That's what Jesus has accomplished. His, his once-for-all-time sacrifice, he went to the cross and died to offer his righteousness before the judgment seat of God. So that when God looks upon us, when God looks upon the people who believe in Jesus, right, he would see the perfection of Jesus for us. Jesus does not offer you know, external gifts. He offers himself. Hebrews 7, in the last chapter that we went through, Hebrews 7, 27 says, He offers himself, and he is the Son of God who is perfect forever. That's literally the verse right before the first verse of this chapter. He is the Son of God who is perfect forever, and he offers himself in our place. Which means that his sacrifice was perfect, infinite, absolutely fitting and suitable to address every spiritual need that you and I have. Like there's nothing that can be outside of it. When he offered it, it was done. It was finished. It was over. And so, like, we live in a period of history where, like, everything that, like, matters for us in the grand scheme of things has already been accomplished. Jesus has won it for us. Um, So, like, because his sacrifice was perfect, what it earned must have been perfect as well, with nothing needing to be added to it. 
you actually can't add anything to the sacrifice that Jesus has already made for you. You can't, you know, build up your own righteousness and like add it on to his. It doesn't work that way. His sacrifice for you was perfect. That in Christ, God's salvation for you and redemption of you, buying you out of the bondage of sin, it was finished. It was accomplished. And so when it says that his ministry was better than the priests of the Old Testament, the reason that it says it's better is because it actually accomplishes the thing that those priests pointed towards, the thing they anticipated, the thing that they looked forward to with hope. And, and why he's saying this is because it's utter foolishness for the, the, the people who are reading this letter to go back to a way of relating to God that is meant to be fulfilled and completed in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, right? It's the fulfillment of God's plan to redeem. So why go back? It, it kind of made me think of... Um, y'all have seen Emperor's New Group. You remember, so like, you know, for those of y'all that haven't seen it, Cusco, who's the emperor of, I forget what, I mean, I guess the Incan Empire is what it's supposed to be. I forget if there's an actual name. Cusco's been turned into a llama by his advisor, Yzma. And he goes on this adventure with Pacha to try to turn him back into a human. And at the end, they sort of confront Yzma and her henchman Kronk in uh, in their laboratory. And um, there's sort of this kind of, mix up and all of the potions that turn people into different animals get like mixed up and and, like they put them in a bag and they're not labeled so they're just like popping random potions into Cusco's mouth um and 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 so event like he turns into a turtle and they're like no that was wrong one try another one they turn him into a bird and a whale and like a bunch of other animals and eventually like he he they, they put one potion in his mouth and he turns back into a llama and he's like yes i'm a llama again and then he realizes, oh wait, no, like that's not what we're doing here. That's not um, that's not the goal. That's not the end purpose. It's better than maybe some of those other options, but the goal was to turn him back into a human. And in a similar way, the people of the author of Hebrews, like like God is at work throughout the story of the Bible and throughout history, really moving us along steps to bring us closer to Himself and to bring the people of God more in line with with what he wants for us. And so the people of the author of Hebrews, in a sense, uh, that he's writing to, they're being tempted to, like, stop at the llama stage, so to speak. To go back to this way of relating to God that was wrapped in symbolism and ignore the better reality that God had for them. To live according to rules and laws and works righteousness and to ignore Jesus, which was missing the whole point. And before we kind of like think that that is really silly, or maybe think that the people of Hebrews are being stupid, um, I invite you to like think about ways that like you live your life trying to ignore Jesus, or trying to ignore the work that He has done for you, or the ministry He has done on your behalf, or the sacrifice that He's made for you. The ways that you try to relate to God on the basis of your own goodness, your own works. Or try to define your value or identity or self-worth apart from spiritual things. You know, if I can just be in the right crowd, have the right group of friends, get that girl, get that guy to notice me. If I can just be a good enough person, surely God will accept me or I'll feel like I'm enough. Maybe if you have the right type of experience, um, watch enough Netflix, play enough video games, go to the right parties. I'll feel like I'm enough. 
and I'll feel valuable and worthy. And what I would say to you, and what I think the author of Hebrews is saying to you, is that like Jesus is offering something better for you to build your life on. The perfect righteousness that he has accomplished for you. Nothing you trust to find your identity, your self-worth, your hope, can go beyond the veil of life and death and minister in heaven on your behalf. And that's what this passage is saying that Jesus does. Like, he sits at the throne room of God. He's ministering in the holy place, the tent that the Lord has set up, the place in heaven that God has declared that he has set, to, he's decided to meet his people in. That's where Jesus meets, beyond life and death. Like, nothing else that you could give yourself to in this life will do that for you. Our money dies with us. Our bodies fade away. Our, even our minds go. But Jesus has promised to be with you and to minister to you and for you beyond death. And I think that's important for us to remember and to realize, right? What do you trust in? Whether you're here tonight and you're a Christian or you're just kind of checking this RUF campus ministry thing out, like, Honestly, the application is the same. Like, we need to look to Jesus more and to realize and to trust in the victories that he has won for us more than we do now. Another point of application is that we ought to take Jesus' life and work seriously. If his, like, ministry is this good and this important, this real, this this valuable for us, this, this ministry is that much more excellent for us, then we need to take what he says seriously. Everything the Bible says about him. Um, we need to take his views on scripture seriously. One thing that Jesus says is that God's word cannot be broken. Jesus like knew the Old Testament back to front. And if sometimes I think there's this attitude where um, we say, well, you know, the, the parts about Jesus are the really important parts of scripture. And everything else we can kind of like ignore a little bit. It makes It's kind of hard to read, a little bit harder to relate to. But that's not how Jesus approached it. And Jesus actually said, hey, all of scripture points to me. The whole Bible is ultimately about Jesus. And so if we want to honor him, we want to, to know him more, we should look for him in those places. And if you're like, yeah, I don't know how to do that, like, let's have a one-on-one. Let's talk about it. Like, I want to help you do that. That's, that's part of what we want to do here in RUF. Jesus loved the Old Testament and honored it. He upheld it. We also need to be careful not to pick and choose which Jesus we serve. Not to cherry pick, you know, well, Jesus says these things that kind of make... Uh, empower me and make me feel good, so I'm going to like look at those things and, and ignore these other things that he says. Um, there's a pastor and poet named John Donne who said, he that confesses not all of Christ confesses no Christ. And what he means by that is like if we start to pick and choose what Jesus says that we're going to listen to, what we're really serving is ourselves and our own, our own desires. We're making ourselves our own God. But this passage is it's not just saying that Jesus' ministry is more excellent. It's not, that's not the only thing that has accomplished something. But it's in the context of a covenant. It's in the context of God's covenant with his people, which brings me to the second point, that Jesus' new covenant that he brings in, it fulfills all of God's promises. Right? Um, a covenant is a promise with conditions, a way of defining a relationship that def- like binds two parties together. And if you want to know more about what the Bible says about covenants, um, we have a RUF at Georgia Southern podcast. And I re- uh, did a talk on covenant theology at our fall conference a couple weeks ago, and I recorded my talk, and it's on there, so you can go listen to that. Uh, it's about 50 minutes long, so obviously we don't have that much time here. Um, but that, that's, that's a brief definition. A covenant is a promise with conditions, with blessings 
for fulfilling it or abiding by it and curses for breaking it. God made covenants in the Old Testament with a lot of people, but the, kind of the big ones are Abraham, Moses, David. In the Old Testament, um, there's also a prophecy, um, a prophecy about a new covenant. Because the people in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, David, and all the people around, they, they kept breaking the covenant. They kept failing. They couldn't do it. Something had to change. And that's what's meant in verse 7. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Um, Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah prophesies about a new covenant that was going to come, a new way that God was going to relate with his people, a new, new, a new covenant that was going to be better than the ways that God related to his people in the Old Testament. Um, so when it says, you know, that uh, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What he's not saying is the first covenant was bad and terrible. Um, because, right, like we know from plenty of other places in Scripture that like the Old Testament's good, that Jesus affirms the Old Testament. And he affirms the Old Covenant and, 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 the, and the law of God, right? Remember in, in the Gospels, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Uh, but to fulfill them, not a, you know, not a, not a I, not a, not a, not a, not crossing of a T will pass away. Um, he's honoring the law. He's honoring the old covenant, right? It's not that it was wrong or imperfect, but what he's saying is that it was incomplete, that it didn't actually accomplish the things that it pointed towards, right? It's not that like. The priests were stupid for sacrificing these, these goats and bulls, but God gave them this system that pointed ahead to a true and better sacrifice, that pointed ahead to a spiritual reality that was going to come to them. Right? That's what Jesus means when he says, you know, not, not a mark, not a comma, not a dot over the letter I of all of the law, of all of the Old Testament, will pass away. He's come to fulfill it, to bring it to completion. And so as the priesthood of Jesus actually accomplishes the things that the Old Testament priests, like their mystery, symbolized and pointed towards, the new covenant that Jesus ushers in is actually the fulfillment and the accomplishing of the things that the, all the covenants in the Old Testament pointed towards and anticipated. It's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's the fulfillment of those things, right? Um, this new covenant, right, which was which was foretold by Jeremiah, we see him quoting in verses eight through twelve. It's uh, it's he, he's quoting it, and, and the ways that um, it is set in comparison with and contrasting with the old covenant. Look, yeah, I'm saying the word covenant a lot. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And this is the specific covenant he's comparing it with. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He's specifically referring, right, to the, to the Mosaic Covenant, to the covenant he made with Moses, which includes the Ten Commandments, which includes the books of, like, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the sacrificial system and, the, and all of the, like, ways that the priests were supposed to offer sacrifices for God's people. Um, but the problem with this Mosaic Covenant is that people disobeyed. People didn't, like, it didn't actually make the people of God perfect. The people kept disobeying. They were disobedient in the desert. Prophet after prophet came and reminded them of the grace of God for them that has been sort of given in the covenant to Moses. But the people kept disobeying. It couldn't fix the problem because the covenant wasn't designed to accomplish salvation for them. 
It wasn't designed to do that. They couldn't be perfect. And so part of this old covenant is pointing ahead and saying, we need someone who can be perfect on our behalf. We need someone who can actually offer a sacrifice that is going to once for all solve the problem. Um, This new covenant. And, um, you know, we see those the specific ways that it talks about it. You know, it's it's uh, I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. They will all know me. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Um, what this passage is saying is is pointing to the spiritual realities that Jesus has brought in. And and you know. The exact stipulations of, of what does this exactly look like, um, the, the, we're not going to go into all the specific details about the ways that the new covenant is um, you know, maybe dissimilar. Because I want, what I want you all to see is that it is the capstone and the fulfillment of what the Old Testament was about. Pointing ahead to the Messiah. Pointing ahead to the thing that, that God wanted to accomplish through it. Which was to anticipate and lay the groundwork for Jesus Christ. Jesus actually accomplishes the things that the Old Testament covenant pointed towards and indicated and anticipated. Another way that you can think about it is this, that, that the New Testament, the New Covenant, um, is, is everything in the Old Testament just revealed. The truth about it. The, the symbols that, that were contained in the Old Testament, they are, they are revealed in truth in the New Testament. And you can put it this way also, that the Old Testament... Is, is the New Testament concealed? That the, the truths in the New Testament are kind of hit, not hidden uh, in, a, in a sneaky way, but like for, in symbols and through signs because the ground is being prepared and it gives meaning to the things in the New Testament. And throughout we see in all the covenants a figure, a single figure who kind of stands as the leader and the head of the covenant, who gets a title of mediator, who stands as a mediator in between God and his people, or a high priest is another word that you could kind of use to describe that. Um, this is the person that Jesus like fulfills. This is the role that Jesus takes on as the perfect version. Um, this is the person that the Bible often t- like calls Moses uh, the teacher of Israel. Um, Jesus has fulfilled that role as the final teacher, the final mediator. We look at passages like verse 11 and we're like, man, it feels like in the New Covenant, we kind of still teach each other, right? Like, I'm teaching y'all right now, sort of. Um, I hope I'm making sense. But, um, you know, clearly it says here, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, no, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. The reason that, that this is in there is because uh, the teacher, we're teacher and mediator often were somewhat interchangeable. You don't need a mediator, you don't need a teacher to show you God because Jesus is your mediator for you. You don't need to have someone to stand in between you and God because Jesus stands in between you and God, and Jesus is God. Like, Jesus has accomplished all things for you. To sum things up, to sum this section up, the the, the main way that the New Covenant is not like the Covenant uh, with their fathers is that the New Covenant is the reality to which the Old Covenant foreshadowed. It's the reality. It's the reality of the spiritual things that the Old Testament foretells. Think about it. You can think about it this way. Like, when a house is about to be built, there's a lot of like stages. There's a lot of steps in the construction process. There's a lot of prep and planning. There's blueprints. There's preparing the ground. There's grading so that it's flat. There's foundation 
work. Then there's the frame that goes up. Then there's you know installation of windows and doors and roofing and siding and like the interior work. And it's it's it can't all happen at the same time. Like things have to happen in a certain order. Um, and it'll look very different at different points, right? Like, like from a bare patch of flat ground to a skeletal structure with wooden you know beams to a fully finished house. And at each step, the purpose of that step is to provide the structure for the next step that will like be built around it. And that's one way that you could think about the covenants and, and, the, and the different stages in the history of God's people. God is building the household of his people at every step. But at every step of the house, right, like you wouldn't say that the house is bad or that it's wrong. It's just incomplete. And you know, just as much as like when the house was complete, you wouldn't say, well, let's go back to, you know, before we put the roof on and like just had the frames and live in that house. No, like that, that would be ridiculous. That would be absurd. You wouldn't want to go backwards in the process. The process isn't complete or fulfilled until it is a house, complete and ready for people to move into it. The new covenant that Jesus has made for you is that is the house of God's people. It's finished. It's complete. His sacrifice on the cross has finished it. That's what this passage is saying. All of God's promises in the Old Testament were pointing to this, the new covenant, in the blood of Jesus Christ. The foundation, the frame, the structure around, uh, around which the full house of the redemption of God's people can be built. So what? Uh, if that's true, then the Old Testament matters. We ought to, to look at it and read it. We're not separate from Old Testament saints. We're saved the same way that they were. We look back to the work of Jesus on our behalf. They looked ahead to the promised Messiah that they didn't know what he was going to look like or what, what exactly it was going to happen. But they knew that God had promised to redeem them. And because they had faith in that promise, they received God's grace in the same way that when you believe in Jesus Christ, God gives that grace to you. Right? You are living in the last sort of days of history. I don't mean like some sort of anxiety-inducing like idea of like end times or anything like that. But like Jesus says plainly, like, hey, from now on, y'all are living in the last days. And what he means by that is you're living in the last type of days that are gonna happen. You're living in the days between Jesus going to the cross and being raised from the dead and him coming again. Right? What that means for you is that God will never change his mind about you. He'll never change the way that he relates to you. He has assured it. He's bound himself to us by a promise, by a covenant that Jesus has earned for us. His means of relating to us will never change. Not even after Jesus comes back and, and remakes the world and banishes sin forever. You can have confidence that God loves you and will never cast you out. The purpose of this passage, or the purpose of studying the covenant idea is that God is saying in every covenant, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. The idea of God dwelling among his people, coming and dwelling with us, that's what the symbolism of the tent and the tabernacle and all these Old Testament things, that's what it was about. And it takes on new meaning when we look at the life of Jesus Christ because he didn't just like dwell among us spiritually in a building, but he took on human flesh and was born and took on all of the pain and suffering of human life 
for us so that he could be with us. Right? You and I, like we are we are very blessed people. Not because we alone can be saved by the work of Jesus, right? Not because we're in this special period of history where God's grace is especially like in a way that wasn't available before. But because like we can see the whole story. We have it recorded in the history books. We can see what Jesus has done for us. We can see in history the love of God for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is an amazing blessing. Let's pray.